theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hi, Dr. Amy, how are you? Hi, Dr. Joy, I'm doing really well. Sitting here in my home, remote. With, with the dogs. With the dogs. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> quiet here. I scooted my husband off. He, he retired, but he has his little activities that he do every day. Thank God. In the... <laughs> I am excited about our next guest. Our next guest is Dr. David Conrad, uh, and he is an exceptional, he is a stellar educator and administrator. Well, let me talk a little bit about him before he joins us. He's uh, Dr. David Conrad is the Assistant Professor of Education and the Program Coordinator of the Educational Administration Program at Governor State University. So he's a wonderful colleague to have for both of us. As a teacher, he taught music for 10 years, including roles with competitive show choirs and beginning band. He served as, for 12 years as a middle school principal and led an early initiative into one-to-one -one computing with Chromebooks. He also has experience uh, researching in leadership in school finance, collective bargaining, education policy, and teacher evaluation. So he earned his educational organization doctorate from University of Illinois. And I know he has shared with us some recent journal uh, submissions, which are really on target with this current situation we're in with remote teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. So welcome, Dr. Conrad. Good Dr. morning. Good morning, Joy. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, uh, David. We can hear you loud and clear. How are you this morning? Doing well, very well. Good. And uh, I think since we're remote, we can slip into this uh, COVID conversation. <laughs> and I think, you know, that school district that you left, they are happy about that Chromebook initiative right now. <laughs> so they're singing your praise. <laughs> you know, we were very early. Um, in fact, the first, it was the, the Samsung 48s, which were the first kind of Chromebook that had been marketed towards schools. And we, I remember we bought 30 of them that first, that first January that we could get our hands on them. And we put them in a classroom and then just every year added one or two grade levels at a time and uh, slowly got implemented uh, throughout my building and, and eventually into the whole district. 
and that was monumental. So that is that is your legacy for that school district. <laughs> uh, so in this remote learning environment due to COVID that we're in, what amount of responsibilities do principals have on decisions that impact student learning? And again, how are teachers rethinking policies and procedures to ensure learning? Uh, it's It's been so challenging, mostly be. I always felt as a school leader, if I knew what the rules were, if I knew what the path was, we can figure out the path. I'm, I'm a problem solver. Give me, the, give me the path. Give me the goal. I can get us there. Um, but what's been so challenging is the, the pivoting that's been required. We've had uh, one directive that says this. Another directive comes back two weeks later. I mean, I, I knew one district in our region that announced on a Sunday night, this is the plan. And by Monday afternoon, had had to scrap that plan altogether because conditions had changed and policies had changed statewide. So I, th I think the, the first challenge that principals have had is just they don't know what the next step is. And so they've had to plan for every contingency. Uh, they've had to plan for, you know, possible shutdown during the school year, hybrid, all on all in person in some districts that are running concurrent programs with some students on campus and some students remote. Uh, so once they figure out what that path is, they have a huge role to play because there are so many logistics that have to be worked out from the principal's chair, obviously working in collaboration with teachers and, and other team members and stakeholders as much as you can. But the decisions have come rapidly. And so a lot of times it has been in the, in the, in the seat of the principal to make these things happen. It's logistics about schedule. Are you going to be synchronous or asynchronous? Uh, how are you going to provide the technology resources to students who are off campus? Uh, how do you get worksheets back and forth? Well, you can't really use worksheets in the COVID world. Um, it has been a, a lot of logistics and management in order to become the instructional program that's going to work for kids. Uh, so principals have a huge role to play in that. And I, and I would say another, uh, another piece that they're, they're really worried about right now is, is the, the health of their staff. They're worried about kids, but uh -huh. staff members are, are, they have multiple challenges. They're, they're teaching. They are raising their own families. They're dealing with, you know, if they've got young kids, they're dealing with remote learning and other COVID conditions in their own household. And yet they are expected to do some very Herculean tasks. I'm supposed to teach the kids in my classroom, but also the kids that are on a camera that are at their home, but then also the students who are not synchronous and providing them with some kind of learning experience. Many, many challenges and, and principals have tried to lay down the, the logistics to be as, as smooth as possible, but very challenging given the uncertainty and evolving conditions. I, and I've seen that firsthand. Um, my daughter, she's a third grade teacher, dynamic teacher, and she's doing some exceptional things right now remotely, but it is challenging. She is teaching remote from her basement, she turned her basement into a classroom, but she has a five-year-old that started kindergarten this year who's on an iPad, and she has her nine-year-old who's in fourth grade who's on a Chromebook, and so he has his lessons going on. They all have different schedules, and let me throw this in. She has a 24-month-old that goes from person to person to person, just creating chaos and because her husband um you know he's a police officer he's just not around 
you know, because he's essential and he's gone most of the time. So every once in a while, I have to go over there and see how I can help manage at least the two-year-old and the dog so that there's some peace for learning. So, you know, they do have to do some uh, heroic things, heroclean things right now in trying to ensure that students are learning. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. There, there's a lot to, a uh, lot of logistics and uh, teachers have to pivot. Principals have to make these, in, these decisions, but not just with logistics. I think principals have a tremendous influence on the climate within the schools. Mm-hmm. So what have you seen that is productive or maybe unproductive in this influence that principals have in that capacity? One of, one of the smart decisions that, that schools have made is to, to, to create some time for teachers to just talk to each other. Um, think about the isolation that teachers are, are feeling if they're, if they're all remote or, you know, even if you're teaching in person, there's no more sitting around in the teacher's lounge with your masks off eating lunch. Uh, I've, some districts, they're not having faculty meetings anymore. Everybody is going to be on Zoom. They're, they'll have a meeting, but they're not going to be in the cafeteria or the gym or the library. They're going to be doing things remotely. So finding, you know, finding ways to, to, to give space and time for adults to connect and communicate, whether it's just, a, just an hour to, to sometimes vent, sometimes share, sometimes reflect, uh, has, been, has been really important. Having the ecological understanding that, that the environment of, of schools right now is going to require a different set of rules and allowing staff members some flexibility to make decisions and choices within this new environment. Uh, rigidity isn't going to work. And so giving faculty members and empowering them with the space to make some decisions to implement the best practices for their classroom uh, has been really important. There, there's no way that principals who are top-down managers right now can be successful and their, their staff can be successful because they need the space in order to innovate and, and feel supported that, that, that they, can, they can try something uh, and maybe it doesn't work the first time. It's, it's so hard for teachers to, to not be perfect or to not have the best lesson plan, but we have to have the flexibility with, within our, our, our culture that allows for mistakes and failure. And tomorrow morning, we log into the Chromebook and try again, because uh, these are all new experiences for, for these teachers. Yeah, and certainly uh, using remote uh, devices when our devices fail, you know? And uh, that's really difficult for a teacher. Can you imagine your, your device fail and you're five minutes away from your students? Uh, you know, and I'm a former middle school teacher like Amy. Amy's a former middle school teacher uh, as well. And I'm a former principal and administrator. One of the things that I saw as an administrator is that teachers, they tend to accept improvement from external uh, vendors, you know, these uh, companies that we hire more than sometimes the school leader. And how do you think that school leaders can best promote change in their school? And the reason that I'm asking you, David, is because I know that you've done some miraculous things in the program that you coordinate. You coordinate that principal prep program at Governor State University. And I've just seen it grow and improve so much. And, you know, the 
word on the street is that this is a spectacular program. And I know it's not leading and, you know, moving faculty. Sometimes we, I, you know, I describe faculty as like herding cats sometimes. So being able to move your team to a place where you can improve the program. Uh, how, how do you do that? How do leaders do that? You know, it's so important in, in, in public education, not public education, K-12. In the K-12 culture, it's really important that, that principals understand the power of distributing leadership. Uh, if, if principals are not utilizing the, the, the collective knowledge and skills and talents of their staff members, uh, then, then they're really missing out because there's a lot of untapped power that's there. So we see, you know, in movements and initiatives such as uh, teacher empowerment and teacher leadership. Uh, here in Illinois, there's, there's an opportunity for teachers to uh, get formal training in order to become leaders. But it, it starts with the principal who has the confidence to delegate, that's the old word, but now we call it distribute, to distribute leadership tasks and responsibilities to whether it's the grade level teams, the, the team leaders, the, the various committees that may be happening in schools. Um, because top-down management doesn't create the buy-in that's necessary for change to, to, to hold. Um, we know that in, in particularly public education in K-12, change is inevitable. Um, we're a political organization. We are subject to the, the politics of state, national, uh, and local interests. We know that things will not be the same next year but it is the job of the principal to try to set the long-term goal, set the path and to provide the resources and tools and time necessary for their staff members to, to implement these changes. You asked how long does it take? It takes a long time, uh, you know, three to five years. Think about a brand new teacher. The research says that, that you put a brand new teacher in the classroom, it's gonna take three years for that person to recover the achievement that's lost because a veteran teacher stepped out of that classroom. So that's just one scenario. What does it take when we are implementing a new initiative in a school? It takes several years for that to take hold because we need to practice it. We need to implement it. We need to improve and refine and re-improve and refine. Uh, and, and, and so the districts that have long-term systematic change in mind, long-term goals uh, and systemic change can, can happen, but it, it takes time and patience. You know, that's interesting that you say that because we talked to one school district and they said it's very costly in adding new teachers. So retention for them is just super important because of what you said and, and because of the systemic change and how long it takes to hold on to. And every time you get a new teacher, you have to put that investment in. And it takes time. So that's interesting that you say that. So it's not, I mean, it just has all kinds of implications. You know, I'm thinking too, whenever you talk about uh, the three to five year investment of, that needs to take place in order for systematic change to occur. And I think about so many times in our uh, past, we've had new initiatives and yet an, another new initiative. What is your advice to administrators, to district leaders who are thinking about that one more new initiative? What are your thoughts on that? What advice might you uh, give them? 
Well, just as it's important that we reduce teacher turnover, it's important to reduce administrative and leadership turnover. If, if you're going to set a long-term path for your district, you need the players to stick around. You need to have the conditions and culture that make people want to, to stay and, and to see these things through. Um, in, in some cases, the, the, the kinds of changes and initiatives that are coming down are so heavy. I mean, think about turnaround school districts and the number of pressures that are placed on, on those districts and the accountability pieces. And yes, we need to share those, but we also know from the research that sometimes principals are the mediator and, and sometimes shield their staff from some of those things. And, and, and probably we need to open up and have more honest conversations about the needs for change and the issues that uh, outside entities are the, the pressures that are that are coming down onto K, K through 12. Uh, we need to have honest conversations so that people understand why we're making systemic change, why we need to change practices and examine data and, and, and so forth. We need to have those honest conversations. Um, prioritization, Amy, is probably the most important piece. The school yeah. leader needs to help the staff figure out where our major important priority areas are. Uh, an example, ISBE released a, a week or two ago, the new prioritized learning standards, given the COVID-19 emergency and changing learning conditions in Illinois schools. That was a really good idea to help teachers and school leaders focus on if, if we have to make choices and sacrifices in some areas, what are the most important foundational standards and learning areas that we need to be, to be emphasizing. So leaders that, that help their staff to prioritize and see what's important to most important to their system, who establish clear mission and vision and actually live them uh, is important. And uh, in, ensuring that those conversations with, with the staff continue uh, to, to bring them into the fold of the, of the leadership process and to, to share responsibility. Hey, hey I, I wanna just uh, switch gears for a moment. Because uh, I want to talk to you about some some trends, uh, you know, this one that we're talking about now, some of these things have been forced upon us with COVID uh, and and in some respects have made us better because of it. Uh, but I want to talk about competency-based education um, is a current trend. And I know some school districts are moving towards competency-based education. How might different grading practices help us in our current teaching and learning situation? So can you kind of discuss that and some of the challenges and benefits of the standards-based grading uh, that goes along with competency-based education? It's interesting. I, I met yesterday with, with a school that is part of the ISBE uh, pilot program for competency-based mm -hmm. education. And they're using this as a really valuable tool for their remote learners. Uh, they're on a very hybrid system with some in-person support, but students are mostly working offline. And because they've taken the time to, to define the competencies that students need to achieve, it really streamlines instruction because we can be less focused on the minutia of, of, of individual lesson units. And we can be more focused on the important outcome. What is the big picture? What is the priority? What is, in, in their case, it's the uh, defined competency that they're using to measure learning. So for online learning in this environment, those folks who are, uh, those folks are ahead of the game because they've already defined what, what's priority and what's most important. And, 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 and they've got a leg up on others. In, in my K-12 world, we, we developed a, kind of a hybrid grading system. We, we do have a, a challenge because parents 
are they grew up on letter grades uh -huh. and we still have grade point averages and those those vestiges of, of education exist uh, so when a school district says we're getting rid of grades that causes a lot of discomfort with parents and, and community members and it's it's seen as a very radical change uh, so what we did in, in my school is that we kept letter grades. We didn't get rid of letter grades, but we reported them differently. We reported them based on students in standard areas. So every graded activity, an assignment, a major test, if, if something became a graded activity, we defined what standards it met. And when, student, when students and parents looked in their electronic grade book, the standards were listed. I'm getting an A in the standard of writing or I'm getting a C in the standard of uh, explaining historical events, whatever, whatever the standard was. And we came up with a, a calculation and a way that we could kind of merge both worlds, understanding that the community expected letter grades, but we as educators knew that we needed to report information in a better way. And so we called it enhanced grading practices. Uh, and it was a, it was a way to, to report grades, but based on, the standards and the, the skills that kids were, were being expected to learn. So, so I think that the parents are really, uh, and the schools are really dependent on higher ed being able to accept this concept, right? And if you're coming into higher ed without these letter grades or these traditional GPAs, what does that mean in terms of entrance into college? So it forces us in higher ed to think differently and I, and I think we're starting to transform. You know, one of the things that will help is due to COVID, as you know, we have had to have some exemptions like uh, with student teaching, the content test and uh, the cap capstone assessment at TPA in Illinois. Uh, and so we've had to rethink that. We've moved the content test to nine months before student teaching to now before licensure. And so it'll be interesting what the research says when we collect this data to see how many more teachers were able to pass through, go through this pipeline. How many teachers are we creating by moving the test later on? How much more did they gain in their knowledge and their competency as a result of this? And the fact that many of our teachers didn't take the ed TPA and we're now more reliant on the university looking at competency-based education to determine readiness instead of this assessment to determine readiness. And it'll be interesting to see the impact on P-12 learning and if that made a difference. Uh, so this is, I think, is very, very interesting. And I think that we need to put out more information on this because this is something I think that's going to eventually take hold. I will say though, ISBE has been talking about this for a long time and, uh -huh. and they've had a lot of consultants that have come on board. There've been a lot of conversations about this initiative and, and it really hasn't stuck. Uh, yeah, change, change is hard. If I'm, you know, if I think my kid is going to an Ivy League school and that Ivy League school is not on board. You know, I want my kid to have a four point something GPA. Yeah, the, the, this, the stopping point seems to be at the high school guidance counselor's office when they bring up, how are we gonna translate this into something for colleges? But looked at the, the announcements from universities on admissions 
this, this, this past fall. We've gotten away at many institutions from SAT scores and ACT yeah. scores because the tests were closed. Uh, colleges have, we've seen some movement in higher ed uh, towards a, a more holistic look at, at candidate performance and uh, applicant performance rather, and what, the, what they're gonna do in the future to, to make those admissions decisions. You know, I'd like to think about that holistic picture for a little longer. When we think about the skills that students need, there are the soft skills too, and not just the standards-based uh, instruction that we want to, you know, check mark, make sure that they are mastering. What about uh, how do you see remote and other means of instruction? especially in our COVID environment right now, how's it affecting these softer skills or interdisciplinary collaborative instruction and maybe something uh, close to your heart, integration of the arts in the curriculum? The arts have taken a hit yeah. during remote learning. There's no doubt about it. Um, just just yeah. think about kids that play a wind instrument like a band instrument or they sing. Uh, they've done aerosol studies that show playing, I, I'm a musician, I play the trombone, I practice it at home, but I would have to sit nine feet apart from every other musician in the orchestra in order to perform in a safe environment. And so most schools have, have had to dramatically change the, the, the approach that they're, they're taking for teaching music in particular. Think about art class. How do you get the kind of media and skills, uh, materials in the hands of kids? in order to take their art lessons. Uh, this, is, this is a real challenge for, for K-12. Uh, how do you measure soft skills in remote learning? That's very challenging. I teach online classes here at the university and I found that to be challenging because as a professor, I'm manipulating all of these tools on the computer and I'm trying to engage everybody. But at the same time, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot more management than when I'm live in person and I can look in the eye of somebody to, 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 to see if they're paying attention and, and to, to measure their engagement level. So for teachers, I think this is really challenging because you have students that bring their own home environments into remote learning. Yep. What about the student whose parent is sitting next to them doing the homework at the table and attending the live? Uh, my, my wife is a, a K-5 teacher, and she has a grandparent of one of her students that sits with the child and, and helps them through their day, which is awesome. But what about the children that don't have that advantage? Their, their parents are working. Uh, they're a single parent household. There's, they just don't have the resources that are available to be with their kids during the day. And so now we're measuring soft skills based on your family advantage. Right. And some kids are just in learning pods, you know, where they basically just have a babysitter. But, uh, and my, my husband, he's a retired art teacher. He retired last year. And he said, not a moment too soon, <laughs> because I can't imagine him doing art online. But I'm sure he would come up with something creative. But I have a question for both of you. No, I keep telling Amy, you shouldn't let a good pandemic go to waste. And I'm trying not to let this one go to waste. I think that will be my greatest regret if I say I didn't do this great thing or something new uh, during COVID. So from a practical standpoint, how are you, David? How are you a better professional 
how are you a better professor and administrator and even dad <laughs> as a result of COVID? How are you better? That's easy. Professionally here at, at the university, uh, I have been hesitant to talk about online classes. Um, principal leadership in Illinois has some restrictions about the amount of online instruction that we can do. Um, but our program is well below that. We had some room that we could have added some additional courses. And although I had thought about it, maybe it was time to do something in development, I was hesitant. But I had no choice this summer. Uh, all of our instruction, unless it was something that, that just had to be in person, all of our instruction at the university was, was online and it forced me to do it. And, and I decided if I'm gonna be forced to do it, then I'm gonna spend every minute that I can trying to figure out how to do it well. And so I reached out to, to a national organization, the Education Law Association. They had online webinars on how you could teach school law better on, on computer. Uh, the author of my textbook was in the class and I was intimidated like, oh my gosh, Martha McCarthy is on this. Well, she was in the class because she didn't know what to do either. And she was trying to get help. Um, so by going through that last summer and then getting feedback from the students on stuff that worked and didn't work, uh, I, I'm glad that I was thrown in the pool because I might not have gone swimming if it hadn't been for COVID-19. Now, I think there's a bigger challenge that you, you talk about learning from this pandemic. I think there's a bigger challenge for K-12 and, and even universities to an extent. The technologies that we're using for, for remote learning right now, they're really not that new. Now, is Zoom better? Yes. Is Google Meets better? Yes. Are there more tools? Are they more enhanced? Yes. But the basic fundamental technology has been around for a decade or more. And in K-12, we haven't known what to do with it. And so maybe by forcing teachers in this COVID environment to use some of these tools and, and by, by force to, to get these tools into the hands of kids and teachers, maybe this will change our outlook on how we should integrate technology into classrooms. The Chromebooks and the iPads and the, the laptops shouldn't just be a word processor. It shouldn't be a note taker and it shouldn't just be a video producing tool, video watching tool. Um, I hope that teachers, once we're back in person, will learn from this lesson and find ways to increase the use of technology for collaborative engaged instruction in person using it in the classroom in a better way. And in addition, using it as an extension outside the classroom. I think that's the greater lesson that K-12 is gonna to have to wrestle with once we get back to uh, traditional face-to-face. -face. And it may not ever get back to traditional face-to-face. -face. This may have taught us that there is a different mode of delivery for education and learning. And we may see some very innovative ideas come out of, of K through 12. Yes, definitely. Um... I think I'm all the better for it. Amy, how about how about you? How are you better because of COVID-19? I feel like I have really embraced this working from home and not feeling guilty about it. It's it's always been, oh, I need to be on campus, I need to be sitting in a certain space because I'm required to sit in a certain space. I feel like I have uh, made opportunities to engage with others just in different ways. We have a family Zoom 
that we have once a month. I still have people who live across the country. That part didn't change. Us getting together a couple of times a year has changed. Now mm -hmm. we see each other more often than just holidays. We visit that once a month. We see the new babies. We talk about uh, the school and what the new kindergarten kiddos are going to be up to. It's, it's different. Um, there are some disadvantages when it turns six o'clock and I'm still in front of the computer because I don't feel like I've done quite enough that day. I know. I, isn't it the truth? We are starting to edge into the six o'clock and seven o'clock or eight o'clock because we're not removed from our workspace. But I'm reading more and more about how to how to separate and how to uh, you know, move into different spaces uh, physically and mentally. So I'm still going to work, but I, I love what I do. So those conversations and the, what our discussions about remote teaching and learning have looked like since May have just opened some doors to some research and writing that wouldn't have been there before. Yeah, so that's great. I don't think we should let it go to waste. And I think that administrators, uh, what do you think, David, have, can really grow from this experience uh, being more, I know it's allowed us to be a lot more flexible, but again, we do have to think very differently about teaching and learning. I'll tell you a quick story. When we shut down in March, I was very worried about my interns that were in the Chicago public schools. Oh, yeah. And I just thought with all of the news media reports, my interns were going to be in trouble trying to get through their required competencies and, and, and uh, internship requirements. Uh, that turned out to be the opposite. The, the principals in CPS were, were just awesome. And the, the, the processes of school improvement and their instructional leadership teams and, and such, their processes continued. And I was so impressed by that. So I asked the principal last week uh, why that was. And she said, Dave, CPS principals have been through strikes. They've been through protest shutdowns. They've been through all of these, all of this unrest. She, she reminded me of, of a convention that came to town where there are a bunch of protesters and it affected schools for a couple of days. She says, those of us who've been around as veterans have dealt with this. Whereas the suburbs, this is brand new. This kind of shifting and flexibility and and in and, and these issues so rarely come across the, the schools downstate that those principals aren't experienced with that. She also said that the, the principals in CPS who were relatively young were struggling because they hadn't had that experience. And that really, that, I, that was interesting to me. Um, principals are gonna learn if they haven't already more about flexibility and situational decision making and, and 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 hopefully that will strengthen and give them new views on on once we come back to face to face why it doesn't have to look the same as it always has since 1905. Yeah hopefully uh, we will continue and principals will adopt e-learning into their regular curriculum where students, once they're back to school full-time, uh, where students have the opportunity, whether it's once a month or whatever, to work from home, you know, so that we can continue to use these skills and evolve. 
you know, uh, we really have to think differently. Um, so it's, it's been great. It's, this has been a great conversation, David. Uh, I always learn so much from you and I enjoy talking to you. Uh, and I can't, I can't wait to see you in person. I mean, we're talking about how we've evolved, um, and we're doing new things through this remote learning. Uh, but still, we know that there's nothing that can take the place of when you have those informal hallway conversations and how these new, you know, just things resonate from there. So we have to, I guess we need to have some informal Zoom calls. You know, uh, I like to have BHAG meetings, big, hairy, audacious goal meetings where we can just talk about things, kind of let loose. Uh, so that we can get on to the next big thing. You know, I think about our new teachers from GSU that are out in the field. They're, if they're remote, they're missing those kinds of transactional opportunities, those informal relationships with colleagues in hallways that just, just tips. And, and I, hope that, I hope that those relationships, there's space for those to happen. And uh, I, 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 I do fear that for our, our young teachers that are out there, that is a big piece of their informal development that's missing. And I, and I hope that school leaders can find ways to, to continue that in the, in the virtual world. Yeah, but it is being replaced with some other opportunities. I can't tell you how many uh, student teachers where their cooperating teachers have had to take off already for two weeks or three weeks because they've been exposed to COVID great thing is that, you know, we encourage those student teachers to get substitute teaching licenses. And so while we normally, you know, discourage them from working or, you know, doing, they can't be a substitute teacher while they're doing student teaching, we've kind of backtracked on that. Yeah. Uh, and now many of them have taken over the classroom as a result. So we really had to have um, flexible in our thinking. So I'm looking forward to the outcome uh, of some of these, these new ideas that we have to put in place. Uh, and I think administrators will really grow as a result of that. Once we have a chance to breathe, you know, we have to have an opportunity to reflect on this. Uh, so hopefully, you know, those opportunities will come. I know I need a vacation in my mind. <laughs> But I, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I know uh, we'll need to uh, pick your brain in future conversations about the ramifications, uh, about attendance policies and about so many other things that are just, uh, well, we're waiting for what the data show us. So uh, we will definitely look, be looking forward to a future conversation. Very good. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Joy. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. You know, Joy, I feel like we barely scratched the surface on the conversations that we could have with David. I mean, he is a, an amazing thinker. And did you know how much background he has in music? I mean, wow. And what he was saying about uh, playing the trombone and the safety considerations. That's right. a whole other conversation that we certainly need to have at some point. But what I found fascinating 
and something that we weren't able to talk about today was his view on attendance and attendance policies. And he has an article coming out soon, I believe, uh, all about that, about perfect attendance and where that stands now in our COVID time with remote teaching and learning. So I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, coming up come out soon so that we can share that with our listeners. Yeah, I think that topic is just as important as competency-based education because, you know, we get stuck in these norms. And so it'll be fascinating to talk to him about attendance because we place so much on attendance. Um, and sometimes we don't give students credit enough for the competencies. Uh, but I can just imagine, you know, in talking to him, especially in this time, it has to be quite challenging to be an administrator right now, you know, and he talked about all the things that they are coping with right now and how the changes move so rapidly and, you know, before they can even set in and that it really takes about five years, you know, and I just can imagine what they're going through. I know for me this summer, uh, my days turned into 50. 10, 15 hour days. And this is like any other summer because not only do you have your normal things to think about, you have to pivot. And you're going in so many different directions to try to do things in this uh, COVID environment, you know, albeit it's very exciting, it's, it, it comes with its challenges. Uh, so, you know, my hat goes off to school administrators right now for trying to keep all of this together. Uh, and I am just, I was excited, you know, David has so many great things and I am so looking forward to his new article. So we'll have to have David back again uh, to talk about attendance. Yeah, and two big takeaways I feel that I will leave with here today are about initiatives. And like you said, taking three to five years for really systematic change to happen. And so to be careful with introducing one initiative after another initiative uh, for administrators, um, making sure that one takes hold and one is uh, fully valued first. Mm -hmm. And the other is creating space. We're turning our days into 10, 12, 15 hours, but we're not taking that space to just connect on a personal level. So he applauded principles for creating the space for that chat and for just mm -hmm. to vent perhaps, where as sometimes whenever we go to meetings, we have a few minutes at the beginning or at the end just to have a little, how are you doing? All right, let's uh, catch up later when it's a little different when you're in a virtual space. So taking, you're right. Taking a break is so extremely important and we just have to really learn in order to be reflective, which helps us grow. We just really need to take that break. So I'm glad that uh, Dr. David Conrad, he reminded us of that. So I really can't wait to talk to him again and can't I wait to talk to you again, Amy. It's great to see you. Yes, indeed. Great to see you. And I look forward to some more of these conversations. Yeah, I look forward to our next battle, but um, let's see. Let's, I think practice one on this one. I don't know. 
I don't know. I think, I think practice. We're still, we're still building a theoretical framework for our conversations, but we shall see. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>